Welcome everybody to another episode of the Darker Audio Podcast. Coming to us today from sunny Sweden is one Terry Medalin from Premier. Hello, Terry. Hey, John. Now, Terry, could you explain to me and to us what it is you do for Premier? What's your role there? Ah, uh, um, well, that's an interesting story, actually, because Premier is probably one of the the flattest management companies I've ever worked in. Um, mm. And what I mean by that is that Primer is run as a team. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a team leader. His name is Simon Algra, and he does an excellent job of keeping all of our energies in focus and, and in control. Uh, but ultimately, my focus then in the team is for marketing. But then I also participate in product development and do a lot of the final voicing uh, of all of our products. Um, and latest thing being completed were the two phono stages, the R15, R35, which was a mm -hmm. lot of hours of listening um, uh, to get it just right. And so that's what I do for Primary. So you're mainly a, an electronics manufacturer, right? Yeah, yeah. We have a varied past in the 35 years. Primary has built everything from speakers to interconnect and speaker cables. We partnered with QLN, uh, so we built speakers for a while under uh -huh. that brand as well, as well as under our own. We built Copeland tube amplifiers for many, many years, and so have a lot of experience there. Um, but yeah, primarily for the last 20 years, it's been our sole focus has been on electronics. Okay. Now, we wanted to talk today about two themes, right? And those themes are joy and fear which um, we sort of landed upon during a phone call a couple of weeks ago in, I think, I, I can't remember how it came about, but I think I was, you were making a point and I was saying, yes, people don't, don't decide to buy something or they, they, they hesitate because they are terrified of making the wrong decision in, in what they're, well, yeah, in what they want to buy. And where did we go next? I can't remember. Where we went. <laughs> well, there is that there is that sense that we almost. In fact, we we John, if if you represent journalists and the press, and I represent mm -hmm. manufacturers, we are partly to blame in some cases of piling on. I think this anxiety that's built up in the general society of this concept of good, better, best, of winner, loser, mm -hmm. um, of uh, the fear of making the wrong choice. Um, and that to a certain extent, because of how in many ways complicated, sophisticated, whatever term you might want to provide uh, for what we do in the making of electronics in Primer's case and in your um, confronting those products of various manufacturers and trying mm -hmm. to make sense of them and provide some guidance as to what their positive and potentially negative features are. Mm -hmm. There is kind of this atmosphere of not wanting to make a bad choice. And mm. because it's so complicated, it's often very difficult, even for informed enthusiasts, hobbyists, to kind of make their way through all of the very technical details that can be part of this whole practice. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's really easy and understandable that people would look toward a concrete, simple aspect to guide their choice. And in a lot of cases, that's, is that a, num that's a number. Um, it's a specification. Um, it is a, a type of something. 
a file mm. type or an amplifier type. Um, and so it often creates this concept, the, the, a greater comfort in that I'm choosing the right thing. Um, and it plays out in a number of different ways in that I remember many years ago when I was a retail salesman and we were in the world of two times and four times oversampling CD players. Mm -hmm. And I could demonstrate um, a two times oversampling CD player that sounded noticeably better than the best four times oversampling player. And I would literally have customers respond to the demonstration by saying, you know what, I hear what you're saying, that two times oversampling does probably sound better, but I want to have the latest technology, so I'm going to buy the four times oversampling player. Or we're updating our products to AirPlay 2, and I had people contacting me wanting to know when that update is going to happen. And somewhat cheekily, I will ask, well, what features are you looking for? Uh, what would be most important for you in AirPlay 2? In part because there may be other features within our Prisma technology that could satisfy those needs. And more often than not, people will come back with, well, you know what? I don't really know what the features are in AirPlay 2. I just want to have the latest technology. Do you think this was a factor in driving the demand for, not really demand, or maybe a, a false sense of demand for DSD capabilities in DAX? in the early 2010s and then later on MQA in in DAX, you know, because people would very often ask, like, does it do MQA? And even if it's a no, they would just go, well, no, I don't want it. Yeah. I, but if you'd, yeah. if you'd ask them why, they, why they want it, they go, well, uh, maybe I want to play it down the line. Maybe in the future I'll need it, you know, even if I don't need it now. So I think that, that that contributes to the paralysis, the choice paralysis. Yeah, the paralysis of choice is huge because it makes it very difficult for people to – um, make that decision uh, because they aren't sure what they may or may not need. And they're, they're told from many different sources that all of this is vital and all of this is important. And if they don't have this, their lives uh, will be uh, lacking. What's the Rolling Stone uh, no satisfaction quote if I don't have the mm -hmm. right shirt or something like that? Um, that you won't have the most satisfying or fulfilling experience, even though you may never for a moment recognize that lack. And so oftentimes, as you suggest with DSD, I go, I will respond to people, well, how many DSD files do you have? Or mm -hmm. how many native DSD files are actually available? And that's not to say that DSD files can't sound great or can't sound better than PCM under certain circumstances. But to claim that they're inherently better or that the format is inherently better and that that somehow trumps the recording, the mastering, um, mm -hmm. the delivery is a false economy, I think, is a false assumption that if I have this one thing, that's all I need, and then I will be protected from any planned or unplanned obsolescence in my stereo system. And there is that sense, too, and I think you're right with MQA, with the SD, with virtually, I mean, anything. Um, I mean, we're, in effect, playing on this in some ways with our selection of Class D amplification for our amplifiers. Um, mm -hmm. In many ways, we'd be better off continuing to produce class AB that receives less resistance. But we mm -hmm. found so many virtues around class D that it just became the obvious and apparent choice for us. And so we're in this then necessary campaign to inform people of why we've done this, why we've made this choice. And so one of the inadvertent consequences of that is that there is this sense that we are claiming that Class D is absolutely the best. 
when in fact, in a lot of cases, you can have an equally good sounding class D amp, a B amp, tube amp, whatever type amp. It all depends upon how it, the implementation, how it's put together, how it's designed, mm-hmm. how it's executed. And it's the same for when you're talking about file types. It's the same when you're talking about um, uh, MQA. Um, there are certain instances where the recording mastering trumps the file type, trumps MQA, um, that you'll only be able to get so much out of it. And I think you and I have discussed even the idea that there are occasions, even though when I think everyone or we can recognize that Spotify, even Spotify Connect, is, and I'm curling my fingers now in quote marks, is low <laughs> resolution, um, mm. there are moments where it sounds shockingly good. And I think you and I were discussing the prefab sprout releases that they're really, right. Yes, we were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, they just sounded great. They had this bass snap and power um, on Spotify Connect that they didn't have in the unremastered version that was on title uh, and at you know sixteen forty four point one, and it was a more enjoyable experience. Uh, to listen to them on Spotify than it was on Title. And that's not always the case, but the fact that we have this abundance of choice is, is where I had hoped to find great joy um, <laughs> when this concept was introduced to me 45 years ago. Um, um, and I thought I'd never live to see this day. I mean, in all honesty, I thought the engineer who I was talking to, who was one of the engineers who was then developing the first audio digital recorder at 3M Labs, mm-hmm. he began to describe to me digital recording and what the outcomes of that would be. And he described this amazing thing, not only digital recording, I couldn't understand it, what he was explaining, I just couldn't grasp. And he pointed mm-hmm. to the reel-to-reel deck that I was using to make my recordings. And he said, okay, what if I told you that you didn't have to bias your tape machine, you didn't have to uh, um, align the tape path, that you didn't have to worry about wow and flutter, that you had endless dynamic headroom compared to what you can get with analog. Would you be happy with that? Uh, And I said, yeah, I'd be very happy with that. And he said, and then would you be even happier as a consumer then of those recordings to know that you were in effect listening to the master tape because it wouldn't have to go through all the processes that we have to go through in analog recording to recreate an LP or, or a, a pre-recorded tape. I said, yeah, that would be great. And then he said, would you be happy of taking this little cube to your record store, being able to listen on your record store's computer to virtually any recording the world had to offer before you made your selection that would be then put on your cube, he did not use the term download, and that you were able to bring it home plug it into your computer audio system and effectively play the master tape. And I said, yeah, that would be great. That'd be awesome. And then he did the final kicker. The, and then there's more. He said, and eventually you won't even have to go to the record store. You'll mm-hmm. be able to just get this over the telephone wires. And I never thought I'd see that. I never thought mm-hmm. I'd see this ability to essentially listen to any recording in amazing levels of quality um, uh, ever in my life. And yet we have computing power now in the palm of our hands that far exceeds the computer that I had access to um, at that time. In fact, those computers where you'd play a video game, uh, not a video game, there's not a video game, you'd play a computer <laughs> game where you would type in on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a keyboard that would go to the mainframe uh, computer at the university, your football play, you had a choice of six, you would wait five to 10 minutes for the response from the computer to come back, whether you fumbled, whether you had a successful pass. <laughs> and the game would last for hours and you were just ex- excited about it. So you can understand how then this future, which we now are in the middle of, 
seem miraculous to me, and it still does. And so there's this great joy for me um, in that. But that joy is tarnished a bit by this idea of this numbers game, this technology question, this this good, better, best, mine is better than yours, and I have the science to prove it, that mm. seems to be dominating uh, the discourse. Uh, Online discourse, not not in in person. I never meet anybody like this if I'm at a show. You know, shows are generally very happy places. It's only online do I see this, the bitching and the, um, I won't call it bullying, but the, yeah, the know-it-alls oh, that sort of, you know, bullying. ruin that. I would call it in some cases bullying. Um, you would? Okay, oh, all right. yeah. I've, I've, I've read stuff, as you suggest, that I can't imagine anyone saying to someone face-to-face. Right. Um, and, and although... You know, you're a younger man than I am, and so your depth of experience may not include fistfights in showrooms and things like that. Um, <laughs> no, it's all. Yeah. <laughs> Although I've heard about them. Yeah. But yeah. Consider yourself lucky then. <laughs> um, uh, and a chair's throne. That was my favorite. Chair's throne. Oh, my goodness. Um, uh, and, 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 and so, but the interesting thing, though, is that that, I think, is where you tap into that joy again. And people become so emotionally involved with this. And I, in almost 50 years of working in this industry, I know I'm overly emotionally involved with it, um, in part because of the joy that we know it can give. And I think for some people, that joy comes from uh, you know, understanding the minutia of the technical details of, of, uh, of really kind of participating in that, in that hardwire, soft, so, hardwired software-driven uh, aspect of this, where I think you might be a fellow traveler with me and that I just like to look, jump into the deep end of the pool and, and experience the music more on a, um, a sensual level, if, if I will, uh, than necessarily on a technical level. And in part, that's because that listening experience has always been more informative than the the technical experience and listening always told me and it seems redundant told me more about how anything sounds than looking at any specifications or any test charts or or anything like that and and for me i think this is where that kind of and we're talking about polar opposites here the joy and the fear Mm. um there is that fear that you won't be able to hear these things and many people will tell you that you can't hear these things. Um, or that if you do hear these things, you're not really hearing them. It's a placebo effect or, or whatever mm-hmm. the term might be. But the thing that I always come down to is that we don't listen with test gear. We listen with our ear brain mechanism. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that needs to be the final arbiter. And that if you don't hear a difference, then for you, there is no difference. If you hear a difference, yeah, then for you, totally. there is yeah. a difference. And, 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 but there is that sense, that evangelical zeal, that almost religious fervor of, of saving people from their own you know, sensual misperceptions, um, where I think people get so involved with that. Um, mm. And I think in many ways, not necessarily coming from a bad space, you can tell I lived in California for many years. Um, <laughs> Uh, but that it, that the intentions are honorable and good. In fact, sometimes I'll uh, I'll stop people in a forum that that I'm only involved in one, uh, where I'll try to tamp down this this energy, and mm. without fail, the person's intentions have always been good. But as the problem is with language, it was not expressed maybe as well um, as they should. 
And, and so it's always fascinating to run into the, the absolutists um, that, that want to say that, you know, this can't possibly be true. You can't possibly be hearing this. Um, it defies all logic and all science. And, uh, and while I appreciate the world that they live in and that they're welcome to inhabit that, I wish it just didn't somehow prevent other people from simply enjoying the music. Um, well, I think I think that's that you just hit the nail on the head with the issue that I see. Is yes, I'm very happy to pe- for people to take their pleasure from Audio Gear in knowing that it measures well, or knowing that it has this particular feature or this technical facet. But what I don't like, and I have to say, like, is when that pleasure or enjoyment suddenly emboldens them to self-appoint themselves as the warden of other people's behavior and where they seek their pleasure. And that's what really irritates me. It's like, do what you do, kick how you kick, but don't tell other people that they should behave like you or think like you, and that it becomes a dogma. And what I think is really interesting, Terry, is that I ve- it's usually people that are coming at this from a measurement perspective but it's where that they people armed with them they do, they do feel emboldened to sort of they, i think they're trying to save other people from what they perceive to be a mistake you know like yeah. you can't mention mqa anymore without <laughs> somebody wading in saying well don't you know the mqa is lossy you know and it, and it's usually somebody who's just asking a question like what's happening with the unfold here this is a, actually a particular example i saw last week you know, what's going on? Why is Rune not unfolding this? Or why am, yeah. why am I seeing this on Kobos and this on Tidal? And yeah, sure enough, there's a dude in there going, well, MQA's lossy. Because, and this is the other part of it, is people are desperate to be part of the conversation. And so they'll use anything that they know <laughs> to interject, to, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, to show, show, you know, to show off, this is an ego thing, how much they know about this area. Look at me. I know that MQA is lossy. And, you know, you've re- I really wish, this is why I think the internet discourse about many aspects, but in particular, I'll just stick to audio. Internet discourse is really coming to a grinding halt. Yeah. And I, I won't really, I, I, this is why I'm not to crash hot in, getting involved in my comment section on YouTube anymore. I was never big into comment sections anyway, for these very reasons. And I just, you know, these know it, know it alls, I guess is what I call them, you know, like, oh, MP3 is rubbish. But as you've said, you know, a few moments ago, it, it, it's, it's not the final arbiter of sound, the mastering and the recording is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you ask me, John, would you take the old masters of those prefab sprouts on Tidal in CD quality, or would you prefer the remasters, but you could only have them on Spotify? Well, in that particular case, I'll take the Spotify remasters because the mastering is better. Yeah. To my ears, it's more, well, okay, it's to more pleasurable. I, I haven't even looked up the um, the dynamic range scores on that, but you're right. It's punchier in the low end. There's a bit more detail. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're too exhausting, although I haven't, I bought the vinyl copies. They didn't come out on CD, so they only went to streaming and uh, to vinyl. Anyway, so... <laughs> Sorry, I've just uh, hijacked a bunch of points there. <laughs> well, uh, don't wait to join in at any point, Terry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it, well, and, and I think you and I have talked about this before. Um, one of the pleasures of living in southern Sweden 
as it is mm-hmm. many places in the world, of course. But there mm-hmm. is this incredible music scene here on on every level and virtually every type of music. And I happen to run into a little band, and they they're these young people, I can say this as an old person, um, um, they're pulling in all of these musical influences and providing this hybrid that is entirely infectious, this kind of pop, jazz, funk, soul, hybrid, you know, blue-eyed, uh, southern, Swedish soul, whatever you want to call it. And they look like they can't possibly have graduated from high school, and yet they are just rocking the room at a concert, the opening act to the group called Floats. Uh, for another uh-huh. young act called Fia out of Norway that was also incredible. And the only thing they have available, at least at that time, they now have put their first single on Spotify, um, was on Bandcamp and on YouTube. Okay. But the purity of their recordings, because there's just, it's so simple and so direct and so pure that while maybe not demonstration quality, you got the energy, you got the feeling of that music in a way that overcame any limitations of, of mm. recording the file uh the playback um and so that's so much fun and, and so i'm sure you're having the same thing in this kind of lockdown experience that we're in um mm. the the sheer ability to hop from one concert hall to another um in a day having been able to go from a jap a concert hall in tokyo to to one in berlin to one here in melmo to one you know disney hall in la all in a single day and with mm-hmm. varying levels of quality and in most cases really really good and there's not a moment that i'm going to sit back here and go well i wonder what the bitrate is on this it's not not going to enter into my equation and i and i know that we're simplifying things and i know that all this has to be kind of it's part of this this hobby this passion uh, Mm. that we enjoy and that as you mentioned we couldn't possibly design a product without relying on measurements and specifications and analysis in that degree but the final arbiter always has to be and is listening um and there's no way that i can you know this can actually be explained uh in the sense that we're still i think trying to figure out how all this works i think i may have mentioned daniel levitan's book um your brain on music um Mm. where in a couple of instances he's going you know neuroscientists we don't really fully know how the ear brain thing really works there are things like volume that in many cases we can't absolutely describe how that works how we turn an increase in pressure wave into Mm. this sense of volume much in the same way of color and we've talked about this um the idea of color vision that there are some people that are colorblind there are some people that have perfect pitch or others that are tone deaf and so there's going to be a variety of experience but in the most part and this is where you're going to have to pull me off my soapbox pretty soon um, um everyone can hear this if you allow yourself everyone can hear this and in fact, I had this really interesting experience when we were designing um, the i35, our first, the first new generation integrated uh-huh. amplifier. And um, this is a little bit of a long story, if you don't mind me telling it about. No, you can, Terry. This is this is your your, your soapbox, man. You go ahead. All right. <laughs> so anyway, um, as I mentioned, the management of Primair is this this team management, this very flat management, and that was a new feature. And in fact, I was brought in to join the team after having worked with Primer for many, many years, predominantly in the United States, then as a consultant internationally. But I was brought in as the outgoing managing director was leaving, and his recommendation to the ownership group was to let them run the company as a team. Don't Mm -hmm. hire a general manager. They know what they're doing. They know what they need to do. Um, uh, Don't 
cause interference by having someone who may not know the industry, may not know the company, the heritage, the tradition, let them do it, which put huge pressure on us. Mm. Because Lars Peterson, the outgoing managing director, had established this amazing tradition uh, going forward from when Bo Christensen started the company uh, of continually improving the products and going in kind of a maverick way. You know, his adoption of, of class D when we had become well known for class AB is probably the most obvious example. And so the first product then of this new team, the prototype comes in and we take a listen to it in the listening room. And much to our surprise, it sounds fantastic. Um, the way we design our products may give you an understanding of why we're kind of listening to this thing in a whole cloth for the first time, is that mm -hmm. we have various specialist designer design building block components for each of our products. So for example, in this integrated amp, someone uh, with a specialist in preamplification designed that. Someone that, uh, with a specialist in amplifier output modules designed that. Um, input stage, um, digital analog conversion, um, um, digital control, all of those things, we tapped various specialists instead mm -hmm. of having a generalist in-house that could do maybe one thing particularly good and the rest of it fairly good. We now have mm -hmm. all of these great people contributing to this. And then the key to all of this is our chief engineer, Bent Nielsen, who's been with the company from the very beginning. And Bent has this uncanny ability to kind of see into all of these various constituent parts and get them to work together sympathetically in a way that I've never really seen anyone else do. And I've worked with a lot of engineers and he mm -hmm. just has this ability to do that. It will sound same components, but he'll be able to put it into the layout, whether it's moving circuit boards around or, or elements on a circuit board um, in a way that's just uncanny. And so anyway, he's put all this together. We have the prototype, we're listening to it. And as I said, it sounds better than we could have ever hoped. So great. Let's get our OEM manufacturer involved. Let's see if we can actually produce this. So they give us the pre-production prototype and we sit down and we listen to it and it is really good, but it is not great. It doesn't mm. have that magic that that first prototype had. And in a lot of cases, you can find that that'll often happen that the prototype hand built specific parts. Sometimes you'll never get that magic. And so as it happens, the way we do it as a, as our practice has evolved, the listening room is at one end of the facility, the tech room is at the other, and Seaman and I, who essentially compose the listening team, we open the door and we will yell, Bent. And without <laughs> fail, Bent will come running down the hall. Maybe not sprinting, but certainly faster than walking. Because for whatever reason, after 35 years, he's still excited and energized at this challenge of how to make this stuff better. Mm -hmm. And then we will describe to him in the most oh, vague audiophile terms what we have heard or not heard. And Bent will respond in two ways. He will say, let me think about it, which means you'll probably get an answer the next day, mm -hmm. or give me 10 minutes. Mm. And he will go away and do some magic on his bench and then bring it back in. And as a usual practice, he doesn't tell us what he does. In fact, sometimes he will even fool us by not doing anything. Um, and then we always listen blind. And so in this case, it wasn't necessarily blind, but he came back um, uh, to see the amp. And we talked to him about this amp then that didn't sound quite as good, didn't quite have the magic. And we said, Ben, what has happened? Has any parts been changed? Has there been any substantial you know, construction issue that might be causing this? Is there a parts difference, that kind of stuff? 
And Ben's looking into the internals of the amp and he's saying, no, no, everything was built exactly as we wanted it to. In fact, I was really impressed. It tested really, really well. And then he stops. And he says, give me 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Takes the amp and he runs back. And then he comes back in five minutes and he sets the amp down. And within seconds, the magic is back. You can tell that the magic is back. And it's kind of like Malcolm Gladwell did this book called Blink, that your first mm -hmm. response is usually your best. Um, and we've, we've developed that as well in our listening test. So it was immediate. Okay, we knew this was right. We were back. So Ben, what did they do? What did you fix? What was broken? What part was swapped? And he said, well, no, it's none of that. But there's this wire bundle. And in fact, we work really hard to keep signal paths really short, uh, use very little if no signal carrying wire possibly we can. Um, we use uh, surface mount components, whatever we possibly can, even down to connectors, just to simplify mm -hmm. the signal path, avoid solder, all those kinds of things uh, to avoid any distortions that might otherwise occur. Mm -hmm. And so in the case of this amplifier, there's a single bundle of wire. It's 10 centimeters long. And it has 12 wires in it. And that's the only signal carrying wire in the amp. And in the prototype, the wires still had the labeling, you know, when they're pulled and the, the insulation has the labeling on the side and you can tell what direction they are. Mm -hmm. Bent saw that and realized that, say, six of the wires were going one direction, six of the wires were going the other direction. And so they weren't all going the same direction. Now, I know some will jump up and down about directionality of cables, but... Ben decided that this would be the only thing that he could see that might make a difference. And so he came back with all the wires aligned, and that made the difference. Now, I've had a lot of experience consulting with speaker design. And I know that when you design a speaker, when you take that wire that goes from the crossover network to the woofer, to the tweeter, to the midrange, you twist those wires. And you're mm -hmm. essentially detuning those wires so that they don't become an antenna for radio frequency noise. And so you have to detune them in the same way you would say, tune an antenna in such a way to eliminate any of this intrusion. And so mm. about the time I was asking Bent, hey, you know, given this experience, should we be twisting this wire to see if we can disrupt its ability to be an antenna, which is always the fear with signal carrying wire inside any electronics. He says, oh yeah, um, yeah, we should absolutely do that. And about that time, our warehouse manager and our service manager came by much younger, oh. um, really good ears. And they heard what we were talking about, and they already think I'm crazy. Um, and so what are you guys talking about? Twisting wires to change the sound? This doesn't make any sense. And having believed so strongly after so many years that you just have to hear it, listening is believing. I said, tell you what, guys, come in here, sit down, and what we'll do is we'll listen to the sound of the amp as I twist this wire. Um, and the great thing is that these two guys represent the two polar opposites of decision-making when listening. One is incredibly analytical, frustratingly so. He'll eventually get to the right answer for the right reason, but he needs to think about it very carefully. The other one is pure emotion. He will react immediately and usually be right. His ears are really good. So it's good to have both of them in there with their young, fresh ears. And so I twisted the cable once and we listened. They think I'm crazy. There's no difference in sound. I twisted again twice. Yeah, still, still not a believer. Twisted a third time. And you could just tell by their body language that they heard something. And I said, so what's going on? He goes, yeah, something happened. Something is different. Okay, well, then let's go to four. 
we went to four and both of them at the same time, even the one that usually takes a longer time to make a decision went, Whoa, what just happened? It's like everything snapped into focus. Uh, and so like a camera, you know, when you get, you know, you know where that exact focus is, mm -hmm. you know, it's there. And so just the same way in focusing a camera, let's, let's get it out of focus and go back again, just to confirm. I said, well, then let's go to five turns. And we went to five turns and they went, well, wait, no, we lost it. We lost it because let's go back to four. Yep. That's it. And so that wire, I mean, we did some more listening, but that wire in that amplifier is turned four times mm -hmm. um, because it made a difference in the sound that anyone can hear, but Bent could not measure. That was, a, I was about to ask, you know, did, did that not really agitate Bent in that he could not measure this? That's the beauty of Bent. <laughs> <laughs> that he 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 understands and believes that it is that hearing is the final arbiter by the same token he understands these relationships and this is where this is, we had an amp called the a60 still do mm -hmm. in fact um kind of our highest expression uh, our reference amp so to speak and he was getting some noise that he didn't like out of the power supply how we identified it as a power supply noise i'll never know but on an intuitive level realize that if you change the orientation of one of the power supplies of discrete supplies, one of these smaller supplies, mm -hmm. that if he actually took it out of the main circuit board and gave it its own circuit board, so it was essentially 90 degrees in relation to the main circuit board, he could cut this sympathetic relationship, this negative sympathetic relationship that was going on, some oscillation or something that was going on within that circuit board. And again, it was not one of those things you could really test and find and testing but something that you could hear when it was done. And so I'm describing that poorly, but there is that sense that all along the way, there are these things that you can hear that you might not necessarily be able to test. Now, I don't doubt that someone could develop a test, find mm. the test, take the time to do the test. But just like with speaker setup, I never measure because it takes longer to measure. I can mm -hmm. listen faster and respond than having to interpret technical data and try to figure out what it may or may not mean. And that's the other problem with specifications. And I'm just going to keep going forward until you stop me. It's the, the problem with specifications is that they can be entirely misleading. And almost, again, kind of like the people that you're talking about, oh, in chat rooms and forums and that, that, that may verge on bullying. But you know, ultimately, most of them are coming from a good place that they want to be helpful. Um, they want to build people. And so, and so people will look at some of these specifications and not fully understand or appreciate, you know, kind of what they're saying. So like the two times, four times oversampling debate, this idea mm. that this higher number must be better. Um, and so I've got to be a little bit careful with this because I don't, I want to make sure that it's understood what I'm trying to say here is that in a lot of cases, you can't look at those specifications and determine how something will sound. Of course you can't. It might give you an indication of how well it's built, but ultimately it really can't. But people people judge this. So, for example, there's a thing called damping factor, right? Um, which to a certain extent is a really interesting specification, a real interesting thing to test for. But it can be misused. And so, uh, example, there's uh, some manufacturers that are touting these really massive damping factor figures, thousands, 2,000, 4,000, that kind of stuff, which is really mm -hmm. impressive. But the problem is that you really can only get those under testing conditions. Mm. The minute you add a speaker wire and a crossover network, that essentially dissipates, and the maximum you can get is maybe 500, 600 usable figure for damping factor. And so 
the issue here is, well, the idea is that the damping factor controls the back wave of the speaker, the amplifier should have more control. Well, there also is that sense of ha uh, going overboard, having too much, overdamping, mm. if you will. And because, and this is not just because primary, we believe in the sense of logum, the Swedish concept of balance, not too much, not too little, but it is this kind of guiding principle. And so if you have this really high damping factor, it's possible then at lower listening levels, you might not have the output energy to overcome that damping factor. And so you actually lose base output at lower listening levels. Mm -hmm. And so there's a consequence. There's always a consequence of this. And the other thing, of course, is then what do you make of the fact that even the best tube amplifier will inevitably have to have a damping factor of 20 or lower because of its output transformer design. Yeah. And yet, you and I both know that we have listened to some of the best sounding systems driven by tube amps with this really well, low damping factor. Sure, because they, they, they have qualities that well, they, they excel in other areas. Yeah. This, this damping factor thing is a good, interesting point, actually. I mean, it's just a marketing decision. Well, not it's not just, but it could be a marketing decision. Oh, in many decision. ways, yeah. Right? I mean, I guess, and uh, so if you're a manufacturer and then you realize that your amp has sky-high damping factor, you might look at that, and this is where the subjectivity comes back into the equation. You might look at that and then make a subjective choice to go, hey, we could make something of this. We could use this to market our products. So I don't mind anybody doing that, just as somebody who makes a tube amp might say, well, our damping factor is 20 and it's awesome and here's why you see all of this is the thing this is the point i'm trying to get to here and i think you've really well steered most and most of the hard work here is that is that all measurements well no not all but many measurements uh, or specifications or numbers can be spun in different directions depending upon the motivate your motivations yeah so, you know, you could say, okay, we've got a really high efficiency speaker. Mm -hmm. And so you don't need to have a powerful amplifier. That's a selling point, mm -hmm. right? But then if you're a different kind of company that doesn't make a high efficiency speaker, you might want to talk up the, the crossover that you've designed mm -hmm. for, for your drivers. And this is why it needs to be like this. And you could, again, roll out some numbers, some specs or whatever, and use it as a selling tool. And so I guess a lot of, uh, maybe this is where a lot of the choice paralysis comes from, is that people feel overwhelmed by manufacturers using the same concept in conflicting ways. So they don't know whether they want high tapping factor <laughs> or low. Yeah. And this is the problem of making decisions based or having conversations on the internet based upon numbers. Mm -hmm. Is you can you, you could just tie yourself up in knots and go around in circles and then just throw your hands up and go stuff this i'm going to go, go and buy a camera or a car or something like that something else which is seems to be <laughs> on the face of it easier to get your head around but this is why you know you could talk about damping factor all day but until you get that amplifier and connect it to your pair of speakers you will be a long way from your own truth. Well, yeah, and, and the thing is, too, is it could very well be and that the, the amplifier with high damping factor sounds fabulous. Right. And damping factor may be only one of the reasons or may even not be the reason why it sounds fabulous. But you're right, this becomes a marketing tool. In fact, in the mm -hmm. days of uh, when Matty Atala was really promoting this idea of total harmonic distortion, which you needed to get mm -hmm. total harmonic distortion as low as possible, um, and that all of these amplifiers and 
was this race to the lowest uh, distortion level because that obviously meant that this was a better sounding amplifier, less distortion, mm. more more true amplification. Only to discover that when it distorted, and it distorted at only infinitesimal amounts, but where it was distorting, like odd order harmonics, upper level odd order harmonics, like thirteen order, that we don't need anything other than but a little bit of that that we don't identify mm. as distortion, but we don't like the sound of. We're on the opposite mm. end of the scale, second order distortion. We love it. We like it. The 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 cliche or the rumor is is that Deca was actually introducing second order distortion into the mastering process of their LPs because testing had proven that people really loved this level of distortion. And so lower levels of distortion in one case are may be meaningless. It's more the character of the type of distortion. And so, for mm. example, um, we had this decision, this marketing decision, that we could have easily added an additional series of op amps into the output stage of our amplifier. Mm. It would have radically lowered total harmonic distortion figures. We could have run around the world talking about how low our distortion figures were, but it didn't make for a better sounding amplifier. In fact, it overcomplicated the circuit. It added extra stages of amplification that didn't contribute to improving the performance. Mm. It improved our specifications. It might have improved the sales performance, but ultimately, it didn't actually perform. It actually didn't improve uh, the sound of the amplifier. And part of that, then, I mean, we're biased toward this. We believe in simple, simple, simple. Simplify everything. Try to make it as simple as you possibly can. That inherently sounds better. So obviously, we're biased in that regard, even on a technical level, beyond any kind of marketing level. But it is a case where there is that need to to find something to guide you in making your process. And the problem these days, and I'm not sure how it's going to work, because I grew up in the days of these amazing retail stores mm. where you had all kinds of gear that you could take a look at and listen to, um, that you could borrow, that you could take home. Um, in fact, as a salesman, I took advantage of that, that we would lend mm. equipment out because it's, it, it's kind of like a puppy. It's hard to bring it back. Um, and so that opportunity is lacking and I feel bad for, for speaking with so many people. I do customer service for Primair and, and there are people out there that simply don't have access, uh, to be able to have as broad a listening experience as they might want to have. And so they have to kind of rely on this and the, on these ideas of specifications and measurements and, and some, some tool by which they can make the decision. And, the thing that I have to fall back on is that I don't think we're living in an era that has ever had so much great gear that whether it's my product or dozens of other manufacturers, mm. that we are spoiled for choice, uh, mm -hmm. great sounding, well-built, um, extraordinarily well-designed products. And so the best solace I can provide to people is that if you have access to any dealer, whether it's brick and mortar online, that will allow you to listen. Mm. That's your best choice. Don't worry about all the other stuff that's out there. Worry about what you have accessible and available to you because you'll inevitably have something that is of great quality that you can do something with. And then that next step, which is the more difficult step, is make sure you've set it up properly. Mm. I have so many people calling me or writing me and wanting to know, oh, I don't have enough bass out of my speakers. 
and they want to know if buying an amp or a speaker wire or an interconnect cable or a change in source will change that fundamental quality of their system. And in many cases, I know the speaker they're talking about, and it will have great bass. And I will ask them to send me a photograph or a video of their system, and inevitably, their speakers are where anyone without any knowledge of this would want to mm. put them on yeah. either side of a bookcase with the front baffle about at the front are just a little bit proud of the bookcase mm. front, which is the absolute worst place you can put a speaker for bass reproduction because it's too close to the back wall and that omnidirectional 50 hertz and below signal from that speaker will bounce off that wall too quickly and cancel the bass. In most cases, yes, yeah. I would agree with you. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and then, then you have, and this is the horrible, frustrating part, is that there'll be instances where just the opposite of true, you back them up against the wall and, and, and away you go. And so there is that sense where oftentimes I can simply suggest to someone, hey, just pull it all the way out in front of the bookcase. Just pull it all out so that the back of the speakers is to the front of the bookcase. And almost inevitably, someone will go, that did it. That got the base. Um, mm. And after, you know, teaching speaker setup training for 20 years to various sales guys around the US and the world. Um, those kind of common things that we often overlook and that you can't necessarily measure um, that can be a joy if you know what you're listening for can also be intimidating and very mm. frightening um, of how to actually deal with getting then that system set up in your home. I want to come back to your point about dealers or rather the lack of them and the lack of audition opportunities that mm -hmm. consumers have because i think it's a bit of a it's a bit of a cruel joke really isn't it that we we live in a sort of golden age of hi-fi quality but <laughs> accessibility is yeah. has probably never been poorer for mm -hmm. the majority of goods i guess i have to I, not for everything and i do sympathize with consumers who feel stuck yeah. You know, they, they see something that I talk about and they go, well, my nearest whoever dealer is a day's drive away or there isn't one or whatever. And I, I don't know what, you know, they don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And they do, they tend to do one of two things. They either give up or they come back to me and go, right now you have to do more work to tell me about this speaker, John, because I need to know yeah. because you're my only point of reference. Now I can't provide that because I've already made the video. It's done. I'm on to the next thing. <laughs> So they might then look at audio shows, which are notoriously unreliable. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I guess I would say to people, don't try and audition gear at a hi-fi show. Oh, it's no. just not possible because of the, the room, unfamiliar music. You know, this idea that you could sit and listen to an unfamiliar room, unfamiliar speakers, unfamiliar amp, and audition a DAC that isn't being swapped out with another DAC, so you've got some kind of baseline comparison. It's just bonkers. Well, the weird thing too, and I, I've had that experience a lot because the, we're actually kind of evil um, when we come to doing shows, mm. that we tend to either by purpose, by design, or by circumstance, usually get smaller rooms. Mm. And we then go straight toward a smaller speaker, more appropriate to those size of rooms. Mm -hmm. And then we very carefully set those speakers up. Mm-hmm. And we will have people coming in, and of course, this is kind of humble praise. I think that's the phrase right now. Um, uh, and be because our electronics are good, but more importantly, we've chosen the right size speaker for the size of room and then set it up well. The people will come in, and literally there was a point where one, my favorite is during one demonstration at one show, I had a guy stand up in the middle of the demo and yell, 
what the f- I, I don't know if I can swear on a podcast or not. You can, you can. Go ahead. What the fuck is going on here? This system yeah. is one one hundredth the cost of the system I just came out of, and this sounds so much better. And and it was like, and again, this kind of falls back to our idea of fear mm. of how can this be? I'm really confused. This system sounds so much better than that really expensive system. And to a certain extent, there is this quid pro quo equation that if I spend more money, it's going to necessarily sound better. Right. So that, so that then leads to that customer thinking that the more expensive manufacturer is putting them putting one over them. Oh, yeah. Which I see this a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this idea that the world is out to get them. It's trying to trick them out of their money. Mm-hmm. It's trying to deceive them somehow. Like, you know, you you hear it a lot with cables and digital sources and things like that. You know, like these guys are they're peddling snake oil, which I've mm-hmm. done a whole podcast about. And I wish they would understand that when they're saying that, they're essentially accusing the manufacturer or whoever of fraud. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it does breed that that sense of trickery, which isn't really going on. They've just misinterpreted the results, mm-hmm. right? Because what's going on in that particular situation that you've just explained is that you've <laughs> chosen a better speaker for the room <laughs> and set it up properly. And therefore, they're now associating that great sound with your brand primary, which is great marketing for you, right? Yeah. But it, the other side effect is this sort of, this resentment that builds up towards potentially more costly gear, especially if it if it's involves bigger speakers. Yeah. It's a, there's some conspiracy at work. Yeah. You know, now that I have a better understanding of how all this works, especially with the, the, uh, the notion of a room interacting with a loudspeaker, you then start to really understand that there is no conspiracy. There, re- there really isn't. There's just, it's well, just the, the idea that there are a whole bunch of people out there in the industry. Let me just finish this bit. Yeah. Out there in the industry, right? And they all know it's a con, but they're all keeping shtum. And then all the all people like me, journalists, all, we all know it's a con, but we're all keeping shtum. And there's not a single whistleblower. <laughs> it's just bonkers. Yeah. So I, mean, I do sympathize with people who come to this conclusion but some people as we have seen in recent weeks some people are more prone to falling for conspiracy theories than others Mm -hmm. and they're very hard people like this are very hard to talk to because if you resist then all of a sudden you're recast as a a key member of the conspiracy and then the conversation is over (laughs) yeah and and, and the funny thing is 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 that i mean obviously this guy standing up in the middle of of, of, of the demo room was feeling like he was being conned somehow. And, and yeah. I literally had to take him out in the hall and kind of talk him off the ledge because, <laughs> uh, well, because there was that sense where, I mean, it, it messed with his perceptions a little bit. And I said, right. listen, this, you should take from this only positive in this sense. The reason why we're doing this is to actually prove a point that one of our objectives, and again, you're right, this is part of our marketing, is that we design compact hopefully elegant products that can fit into normal listening environments without turning them into what looks like a recording studio or a a science lab. Um, And that in many cases, customers really can, through careful choice, um, with really good amplification, and this is the frustrating part for me because everyone says how great that speaker sounds, and I have to under, you know, raise my hand and go, well, you know, there's electronics in this system that's allowing those speakers to sound the way they do. But that most importantly is that we don't need to spend as much money as we want. And again, this is self-serving because we don't build ultra-expensive product. And there's no doubt mm. that ultra-expensive product in the right setting can do 
incredible things. And we're back again to this idea that it's all contextual. But a lot of people, I think, will go for much bigger speakers than they really need um, because that's easy to do. And the assumption is then that that's going to give them better sound when, in fact, if they get something that better matched their their room, the better off they'd be. And a lot of times that means, in many cases, less expensive, oddly enough. Um, mm. So their hope is that, that, there, was, there, that there is a, a kind of better a more positive spin on this because in a lot of cases, some of the big sound rooms, well, I'll give you an example. We were at the Bristol show and mm. we had this room that was certainly for many years um, that we were able to get good results from. And then we were moved to another room. The room was essentially the same dimensions, but for whatever reason, this room would not allow us to dial in the bass from the speakers in the system. We knew it was capable of. And so mm. there'll be cases where, you will be fighting a system or a room that doesn't work. But then on the other hand, I did another show in Norway where I walked into this room and it was a great setting. We had kind of our own area of the hotel to be in. We had kind of a cafeteria area we could set up for people to sit down and talk, which often you don't get in shows and demo rooms. People are talking during the demo, that kind of stuff. So everything seemed ideal until we got into the demo room. And it was five walls and ceiling of solid concrete mm -hmm. and the only thing that wasn't concrete was the glass wall mm -hmm. and so it was a complete nightmare when you first looked at it for setting up but but fortunately enough um our representatives in norway Ludgleda, they had brought just what we needed a couple of rugs a couple of panels to hit the first reflection and one to handle the back reflection. And then just with careful setting of the speakers, letting the speakers in the room interact and finding spots where they worked best together, we got great performance. Mm. And so it's simply a case of, I don't want to say it's, 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 well, I don't know, unpredictable. Uh, mm. Because in many cases, I think almost any room you can work with, you can find the right combination that will give you the best possible performance of that room and very satisfying performance. But it is a case where it's not always money. It's not always throwing money at it. It's not always specifications like we've been talking about that can make it work. And this is where the lack of the dealer um, does really present itself because, as you suggest, they've got to take the information they can glean from you. They've got to take the information that they might be able to take from a manufacturer like myself. They're, they're desperate for more information because they're on the forums yeah. and in the user groups and asking questions just to get some input to help them make the decision before they make what is an expensive choice. Um, uh, it is a case where I'll have often have people who aren't interested in this, you know, ask me how much our products cost. And in many cases, they'll just be aghast. Yeah. And with the assumption that it's only wealthy people that buy the product. And I have to correct them and I go, no, it's people that are so passionate and are so dedicated to this with incomes much lower than you might expect um, that really get the joy from listening to music, setting up these systems, playing with these systems. And that is their, their hobby. And so in a lot of cases, when someone like this that doesn't have a lot of expendable income is making those choices, you can understand their fear. Um, that they won't get that joy um, uh, from their choice, from their selection. Um, and I wish it were easier. I wish that there was a way where we could easily go, okay, because of the following test measurements and because of um, the measurement of your room, I can tell you that this will work. 
Um, and, and you can, but only, you know, to a limited extent. And then it's a matter of simply trying to do system setup to make it I think, work. Yeah. I think what we're getting to here really is that if you don't choose the right speakers for your room, you are setting yourself up for untold struggle in the long run. Yeah. Because you're going to blame everything but the room. And I did this. I've done this. You know, when I started out, I made the same mistakes, bought a big pair of speakers that sounded horrible, and I blamed the speakers <laughs> and sent them back. I could send them back if they were on a, you know, a home demo, which is great because you I have that ability, you know, have that luxury to be able to do that. But it took me years to realize what the, 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 the magnitude of the mistake, even though the manufacturer, to his credit, pointed it out to me at the time. He's like, how big is your room? Yeah. What, what's the makeup of the walls? Where, where have you got the speakers sat? But I was, I guess I had suffered a case of Dunning-Kruger, <laughs> where, you know, this happens a lot with people, especially when they're starting out. They know enough to be a little bit, you know, they know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to be really smart about what they're buying or what they're talking about. And these people, if they go, <laughs> if they're a bit too cocksure of themselves, they will end up making very expensive mistakes and then giving up. So I guess if I was advising any beginner is choose the speaker very carefully and it doesn't have to be the most expensive one. And if you've, if you've got a speaker you like and that really works well in your room, then put all your money into the electronics and ignore the people that tell you that you should spend most of your money on the speaker. I think this kind of thinking was born of an age, maybe the seventies where people had just had bigger rooms, bigger houses. I, I mean, I, I, this is the impression I get. I mean, even I, when I think back to Australia, a lot of people live in apartments now as I did when I lived there. But in the seventies, I think more people, I think I'm guessing more people just, you know, the, 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 the idea of the Australian uh, dream of living on a quarter acre block of land and having a house on that, you'd have a bigger room to play with. You didn't really have to worry about <laughs> small room dimensions. You had more to play with, I guess. Yeah. And I, I would guess it's the same in the USA, but you might want to correct me on that. I don't know. Oh, no, there, there, there is that sense. In fact, when we brought out the, the 15 series, our little three-quarter size series, um, both Australian and U.S. representatives said it wasn't big enough. It, just, right. it wasn't big enough to kind of fill the space and the expectations uh, of people, regardless of the fact that it was big enough to enclose the electronics uh, mm. that we wanted to make it work. But yeah, and it, it, it's true. And that, and then, of course, it's always this kind of, and I have to hesitate because uh, I want to be as fair as I possibly can, because it's always easy mm. for me as an electronics manufacturer to go, yeah, you should pick some really high quality, uh, great sounding speakers you love, and then really max out on your electronics. Um, kind of in the same way that, that, you know, Lynn very logically put forward that idea. Well, it's the source. You have to have the source. If you don't get it out of the source, the amp's not going to put it back in. The speaker's not going to put the missing elements back in. And of course, then that, that there's that horrible wishy-washy thing that you eventually wound up in, and that it all matters. And so, but to your point, just to kind of see yeah. by what you're saying, yeah. um, what you're saying then is that don't put too much emphasis on the speakers because you will get yourself in trouble there. You have to have that balance. It's not too much emphasis on the speaker. It's, it's actually put a lot of emphasis on the speaker, but don't necessarily worry about its size. Yeah. Because you know, when you're starting out, you, yeah, you're right. Your eyes become bigger than your belly. You're like, oh, the, 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 the simplistic thinking is, 
the bigger the speaker, the better the speaker, mm. which is absolutely wrong mm-hmm. when, as soon as you begin to factor in the room. You don't factor in the room, you're just going to think that. I used to think this as well. When I started buying Crick's loudspeakers in Australia, mm-hmm. I started with stand mounts and went to a larger stand mount, then a larger stand mount, and then I was like, I know, this is amazing. I just want more of this. I'm going to buy a floor stander. And I didn't love it as much yeah. as the, the other stand mounts. And I never, at the time, I didn't know why. Now I do. Yeah. I just went too big in the end. So I just... Yeah, sorry. No, 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 no. but that, that, that trajectory is really well-founded because I think what people don't really understand is as wonderful as big speakers can be, it is because of that low bass extension that they can get into trouble with room interactions much faster yes. um, than with a smaller speaker. And in fact, one of my, the favorite things that we've been doing lately is running around with uh, Falcon LS35As, mm-hmm. which should, you know, they, what I think 70 hertz is what their rated low frequency is or but the beauty of them, the beauty of them, uh, or other, and not even just them, but speakers like them or, or smaller speakers, is that again, and I keep, I hate to keep emphasizing this, but you find the right spot for them in the room or sized right for the room. They will give your brain enough information, the upper harmonic information, to fill in the rest. If you've got them balanced well, you will be shocked. I remember playing what, a Trunkmiller's Vamp for someone on a LS35As, and they just couldn't believe the bass. Now, of mm. course, the bass wasn't there. If we'd had a bigger speaker, that kind of stuff, um, they would have heard what was missing. But there was enough of it in balance mm. and correctly delivered where you were able to affect fool yourself. And I think that's the key feature here. And the one thing that, that I wanted to hit on before we left had the chance to leave off, um, is this idea that this is an audible illusion, much in the same way that it's an optical illusion. Um, and, and, and so we really are about fooling ourselves. And the couple of examples I give for that is that if you have um, a, a center sound stage, a, a female vocalist in the center of the sound stage, and you're in the middle of the speakers in the triangle, so to speak, there's nothing you can do in your brain to turn off the mechanism that with equal sound coming to both ears, that you position with the source of that sound in between the two speakers. Even though there's mm-hmm. nothing there, you are fooled in that regard. And so we're playing with that in a variety of ways. And in the, the kind of our filling in the bass is kind of like I had a, had a good fortune of doing some work um, at Dolby Labs. And their research mm-hmm. scientist is a woman by the name of Dr. Poppy Crum, who not only has this amazing name, uh, but is just an incredibly wonderful, facile, agile brain. Um, and, and, and she does, goes around at events and does a number of demonstrations to kind of prove this idea of, of um, audible illusion. Um, and some of it is in support of glossy compression that we can lose some stuff. So I don't doubt that she can be met sometimes with some negative reactions, but she does this thing where she plays a recording of someone speaking. It's just a speech. And in the middle of the speech, someone coughs and the speech goes on. And then she replays the speech and she plays it without the cough. And you realize that this two syllable word that was being said in the speech, the second syllable was covered by the cough. And then when she replaces it without the cough, you realize that that syllable is never spoken. That the person says biz, but they never say business. But our brain fills in the, the ness of business with that cough because we expect that. 
because we're already anticipating what's coming next. It's like how, you know, closure in a classical piece of music or closure of any music, you go down to the dominant and you know you're done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there is that sense that we're working with creating this illusion. And in a lot of cases, you know, that can't not be measured. Um, you might have seen it on, on uh, online recently. There was this optical illusion thing where it was concentric circles drawn in a particular way that to our eye with our stereoscopic vision, it looked like a spiral. It looked like it was spiraling down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yet it's three. Uh, not three. It is concentric circles. It is not this continuing spiral down. And so I think that's the trick of this art is all of this effort from recording to reproduction to uh, reproducing it, you know, with electronics and speakers and sources and that kind of stuff. It's how carefully can you craft this magic act to create this wonderful illusion. And again, mm-hmm. I kind of get a little more mystical about this whole thing. But for me, the great pleasure uh is essentially alerting people to the amazing quality of their senses that we often take for granted um in teaching film it was always amazing to introduce kids to uh surround sound but first i knew i had to introduce them to stereo and i realized that after i started doing this i had to allot for an additional hour for my demonstration of surround sound to get them comfortable in understanding what stereo was and they would light up they would just simply, they would be so much more energized and have this another aspect where they could play around with, and, you know, kind of, oh, does mm. that mean that then when I have the killer coming in the room, I can have him coming from the back and move around the, the room? Yes, you can. You can do all of this. You can, you can shape this in ways that will move your audiences uh, and they will never know it. They will never know that you are manipulating them and doing it solely through sound. And so we mm. celebrate these senses, um, I think, in a way that, 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 that should be celebrated, that there should be great joy in that. And hopefully we, we, we won't allow this kind of fear um, and, and this willingness to rush to what may be meaningless specifications uh, to misguide us. Terry, I think we'll end it there. Thank you very much for being a guest today. I really appreciate your time and your wonderful stories. I mean, you're an incredibly eloquent gentleman and, you know, tell stories very well. So I I think, I hope a lot of people will get a lot out of what you've said today. Well, I do too. I appreciate you asking me to do it. I hope I wasn't, I hope it was entertaining and informative. Uh, And so it's a great pleasure to have you ask me to participate. Thank you so much. You have been listening to the Darko Audio Podcast with me, John Darko, and Primez Terry Medallin. Music was by Ben Pitt, and this episode was produced by Nick McCorriston. Mm-hmm.